Hello everyone, it's my pleasure to introduce you today to Stephen Roberts, the Emeritus Director of the History of Parliament Trust and editor of the House of Commons 1640 to 1660 section, which was recently published. And we're going to talk to Stephen today about John Pym, a critical figure in the opposition to Charles I. It's often considered wrongly that Cromwell was the foremost opponent of Charles I right from the outset. And outside academia, John Pym is somewhat relegated to a more minor role. So we're here today to find out a bit more about this individual and and also how historians have changed in their approach to him over the recent generations. So welcome, Stephen. Thank you very much, Andy. Pleasure to be here. Perhaps you could get us started, please, with just telling us a little bit about who was John Pym. Well, John Pym was a Somerset gentleman whose roots were very much in the West Country, although like many gentry of the time, he went to Oxford and the Middle Temple in London. But his significance is as one of the leaders of the opposition to Charles I, first of all in the short Parliament and then in the long Parliament until his death in December 1643. So he's really the powerhouse of opposition to Charles I, first of all in the short Parliament and then in the long Parliament in 1640. But he had a distinguished record of service in Parliament in the Parliaments of the 1620s. So of all the MPs in opposition to Charles I in the short and long Parliament, Pym was very important and quite outstanding. So um, when was Pym first elected as an MP and what role did he play in the parliaments of the 1620s? He was first elected to Parliament in 1621 for the borough of Carn in Wiltshire. And the reason he was elected there is that he had contacts with the town, with the borough, because of his job at the time as a receiver of crown revenues. And this brought him into contact with towns and the gentry of Wiltshire and Gloucestershire and other places. So it was natural that he should be elected, really, to a borough like that, which already knew Pym and had had dealings with him. His role in the parliaments of the 1620s was as an assiduous MP, making many speeches in Parliament, not necessarily in a position of leadership, but in a position of prominence in his opposition to Charles I, or at least to Charles I's some of Charles I's policies, he was quite outspoken. He made lots of recorded speeches. And what we should consider Pym was doing in the 1620s is really building up a parliamentary profile. But in the abrupt dissolution of the last of Charles I's parliaments in January 1629, Pym played no part at all. So we shouldn't think of him as being a marked man, as it were, in the 1620s. So during the 1630s, of course, Charles I ruled without Parliament and he provoked two wars with Scotland in 1639 and 1640, which are now known as the First and Second Bishops' Wars. During that time, in what ways was Pym able to oppose Charles I? Yes, Andy, the 1630s were a difficult time for the opposition, really, because there was no focus, there being no Parliament. But Pym's activities in the 1630s was partly as a businessman. He was involved in lots of schemes involving colonial activity abroad in the Providence Island Company, the Saybrook Company. He was involved in the French Company. He was an investor in that. And more locally, local to home, 
He was also an investor in the Coventry Collieries, which were owned by Coventry City Council. So he's active as a businessman, but these are not ordinary business interests because his fellow investors, his fellow businessmen in these ventures, were leaders of the opposition themselves, some of them in the House of Lords, some of them leading gentry figures. So in the 1630s, his business activities really provided a kind of informal way in which the opposition to Charles I's policies could be sustained, developed by discussions and by business contacts. So how involved was John Pym then with the correspondence that some of the leaders of the opposition were engaged in with the Scots covenanters during the Bishops' Wars? Well, I think it is thought, that is, we can assume, I think, that Pym was involved in these contacts with the Scots, though hard evidence of Pym's involvement is difficult to come by. One of the problems we have with Pym is that he leaves behind him no significant body of letters. There's not much by way of speeches and so forth of Pym's that really survive of an informal kind. We piece together Pym's activities largely from the official record, which makes him a bit of a puzzle in some ways for the biographer. I think we have to assume that Pym was involved in the Scots, the intrigues with the Scots, as it were, collaborations with them, but we can't be absolutely sure. So after the long parliament met in November 1640, what was Pym's role in driving forward its religious reforms? Well, before we get to the long parliament, I think we ought to perhaps have a quick mention about the short parliament, which met in the spring of 1640, in which Pym was able to hone some of his political skills. Pym gave probably the most impressive speech of all in the short parliament, which rehearsed a lot of the oppositional principles to Charles I's government. And when Charles abruptly dissolved the short parliament, after only a three-week sitting, it was in hindsight, of course, a great training ground for what came in the long parliament. So once the long parliament was sitting, was there anything which particularly marked Pym out as different from other MPs? I think the main thing about Pym uh, compared to other MPs is quite how busy he was and what vision he had, really, for the Parliament. He told Edward Hyde, who later became the Earl of Clarendon at the start of the Parliament, they must not only sweep the house clean below, but must pull down all the cobwebs, that they might not breed dust and make a foul house hereafter. And Pym very much made good on that promise to reform, and some statistics can give some sense of how busy he was. Between November 1640 and October 1643, when Pym fell sick, he reported from the House of Lords, or between the Commons and the Lords, 146 times. He managed 191 conferences between the Commons and the Lords. Between January and July 1642, he proposed 90 motions in the House of Commons of one kind or another. And between November 1640 and his death, he was named to no fewer than 226 parliamentary committees. And so there was no one more active, really, in the long parliament than Pym. The Commons Journal, which is the official record of that parliament, in the first couple of years, the pages of the journal run to over a thousand pages, and Pym's name is on virtually every page. So he was extremely busy, and that was really what marked him out. 
So he's a shining example to MPs with second jobs and newspaper <laughs> columns today. Absolutely, absolutely. He lived in Parliament quite literally. He, he never went from there, really. So when the Long Parliament did meet in 1640, Pym's political skills were extremely well honed and he'd had this rehearsal period of how to launch an attack on Charles I, although it didn't begin particularly abruptly. It was a slow and steady and rather subtle attack on the king. It was rather a roundabout attack because it first of all criticised the king's ministers and initially not even them by name. Pym's initial opening salvo in the Long Parliament was to do with the principles of a global popish conspiracy that was coming closer and closer to home. And then as he got going in the long parliament, after only a few weeks really, this started to home in on individuals. And the king personally was never criticised at that point. So of course one of those individuals became Thomas Wentworth, Earl of Strafford. What was Pym's role in the attack on the king's favourite? Pym's role was central to the attack on Strafford and there is no more significant manager of the impeachment and trial of Strafford than Pym. He devoted huge amounts of time to the Strafford trial. Although he wasn't the man who devised the arguments necessarily and he certainly wasn't a lawyer and didn't play any significant role in the legal case that was being devised against Strafford, he was the principal manager of it. And it was a key skill of Pym's that he was able to bring people together to work collaboratively on projects. That's one of Pym's outstanding skills, really, as a politician, this capacity to reach out and get people to work to a common end. And that's visible in the Stratford trial. And he worked tirelessly to bring Stratford to trial and eventual, of course, execution. Why do you think he was so tireless in pursuit of that? Because Strafford came to embody everything that was wrong about the government of Charles I, he could detect in Strafford the manifestation of the global Catholic conspiracy that fired Pym up very much. He could see in Strafford an attempt to use the different constituent parts of the British kingdoms, as it were, against England. And so Strafford became really a focal point for all the opposition that had been building up for a long time. So in May 1641, Parliament decided to enact a pledge to protect the Protestant religion, protect the privileges of Parliament and the safety of the King's person. And it became known as the Protestation. And what was Pym's role in bringing that about? Well, Pym was certainly behind the Protestation. He wasn't the only one behind it. And we don't think that Pym actually wrote it. I think Sir Robert Harley was probably quite important in that. But it was a very Pymian idea, this idea of getting people to sign a kind of pledge as an oath, well, a kind of expression of loyalty. There are two particular Pymian things about that. One is that it brings in people on board. It's a way of dividing the sheep and the goats or the way of bringing people on side, as it were, a definition of who's for you and who's against you. And it's also Pymian in the sense that it wasn't, as you rightly say, an oath because to impose an oath on people would cause difficulties with people's religious consciences. So it's quite important that it wasn't an oath. It was devised in such a way, such that most people could sign up to it, as it were, without causing them difficulties. And most members of the House of Commons did take the protestation. 
in May 1641, even the future royalists, as it were. And then in January 1642, the protestation is extended throughout the country, again as a way of galvanising support or indicating expressions of support in the country for Parliament. And that's a very Pymian idea too, extending it outside of Parliament. And with Pym, there was always a kind of backward-looking element in his thinking, and he was harking back in some respects to the oath of association that was taken under Queen Elizabeth. So it's not a new device, and it's rather typical of Pym that he should look backwards, as it were, for something that's been used before. But the idea of getting people to sign up and extend outwards and bring people in as far as you can and to take the temperature of the political situation by asking people to sign up for a particular device or project is entirely Pym's outlook. And so it is characteristic of the man. And when the protestation was tendered to the whole country, of course, this in some cases brought women into the political sphere as women subscribed to the protestation. And in some parishes, lists of refusers were drawn up with the aim of marginalising and exposing Roman Catholics. So I imagine that would have had quite a divisive impact upon the country at large. Yes, and by that time, things are beginning to get out of control, really, in terms of the relations between the king and parliament. And given the difficulties that faced both the House of Commons and the king politically at that time, this was a deepening of the political crisis, really. So we then, of course, have the outbreak of the Irish Rebellion and the passage of the Grand Remonstrance through the House of Commons. What was Pym's role in that? Well, the Grand Remonstrance was yet another summary of all the oppositional ills of the kingdom. What was significant about the Grand Remonstrance was that it went into enormous detail. And of course, it wasn't written by Pym, although he would have had a hand in it and certainly approved it. The significance of Pym in that episode is that he wanted to widen it to include a kind of broadcasting, if you like, to the kingdom. He wanted to involve people outside Parliament. And that was quite a significant episode, really, because it clashed in some ways with the culture of Parliament, which was to keep things within the bounds of Parliament rather than appeal to the people. And it was, again, another skill of Pym that he was able, on occasion, when it suited him, to appeal to the people of England to support his policies and work with him, as it were, against Parliament. And he knew when to turn that particular tap on and turn it off on occasion too. So that was Pym's particular part in that. It was a useful tactic by which all the ills of the kingdom could be brought into one document that could then be submitted to Charles I because the Grand Remonstrance was really a big petition, a huge petition of Charles, and it ran to many, many paragraphs. So we're beginning to see some of the reasons why Charles I tried to arrest John Pym and four other members of the House of Commons on the 4th of January 1642. Perhaps you could talk us through what the King's motives were and perhaps who might have shaped his plan. To understand that really, we've got to go back to the late September period of 1641 when Charles I, despite the petitions and pleas of the people in Parliament in both houses decided to go to Scotland. They were afraid of Charles going to Scotland because they thought he would be able to stir up forces there against Parliament itself. And when Charles did go to Scotland against the advice of his subjects, 
PIM was crucial in devising a device in Parliament called the Recess Committee. And the Recess Committee of September and October 1641 claimed executive authority in a way that Parliament had never done before. Charles was out of the kingdom, and while he was out, the Recess Committee effectively ran the country. It claimed all sorts of powers, and Pym was in charge of it. Pym was the head of the committee, the chairman of the committee. Nobody was more significant in it than Pym. Nobody was more active and keen on its existence than Pym. And it was in that period that people started to talk of King Pym, not least because he, with the king out of the country, as it were, in Scotland, Pym was the obvious source of authority in London, in charge of the recess committee. So Charles had begun to consider by now that Pym was dangerous. And of course, not only Pym, but his other fellow leaders of the opposition. And things came to a head in December of 1641 when there was disorder on the streets. There was an attempt by the king to take over the Tower of London or claim the Tower of London rather and put in a governor of the Tower of London that Parliament had deep suspicions about. So you've got in December 1641 a deepening crisis. So in January 1642, Charles I decides to nip this growing plot as he sees it in the bud and invades the House of Commons, as is well known, to arrest not only Pym, but other leaders of the opposition. And it goes drastically wrong. They've already fled to the City of London by the time Charles arrives, but he arrives with an armed retinue, and things could have got extremely nasty had he found Pym and the others there. So this is a turning point, really, in the growing poor relations between the King and Parliament. So for what reason do you think the attempt to arrest the five members was so politically damaging to Charles? Well, for one thing, it was the first indication that violence could be used on either side, as it were, to achieve political ends. And it's not just the politically committed men like Pym who feared what happened in January 42. Even some of the king's supporters were alarmed and disturbed by what Charles was trying to do. Someone like Sir Simmons Dews, for example, who was quite neutral and well-disposed towards the king in many ways, wrote in his diary about the alarm and anxiety that he felt when the king invaded the chamber. So it heightened the atmosphere in a way that was politically unhelpful. But also, from Pym's personal point of view, we have to remember what this really meant. Because had Pym been arrested on that occasion, he was going to be charged with high treason and no doubt would have been found guilty, and the fate of traitors was to be hanged, drawn and quartered. So this, for Pym personally, marked a huge turning point. It meant that he was politically a marked man from henceforth, and you can begin to see from this point the disappearance of what goodwill Pym had harboured previously towards the king. If somebody tries to take your life, which is effectively what was happening there, it would be bound to change your outlook and it certainly did with Pym. So perhaps that's a good explanation for why all the attempts to find a peaceful settlement in the opening months of 1642 didn't materialise. So moving on now to the outbreak of war, how much do you feel the Long Parliament's system of governance, county committees in the shires and standing committees at Westminster, how much did that owe to Pym's vision and architecture? 
Probably not quite as much as is often thought. The device of the committee, which is only just a group of people with delegated authority, was well understood and well used by parliaments long before 1640. So the committee as an institution as such was not new. But as when we were discussing the recess committee, that was an innovation. Giving committees extensive executive power was certainly something new and something that Pym supported. But when we think of all the executive committees, like the Committee for Sequestration and the device of assessments that were imposed on the country, taxation imposed on the country, in which committees were used, PIM was not the driving force behind that. If we think, for example, about the assessment and about sequestration and about the excise, Probably the most important figure in all of those things was a Droitwich man called John Wilde, who was really quite crucial in developing those particular mechanisms by extending Parliament's power. But what was significant about Pym was his commitment, of course, to extending parliamentary authority by whatever means. You can't necessarily attribute practical devices like that to Pym, but he's certainly there very much in favour of extending Parliament's authority. So is that how you would reflect on what Pym's main achievements were? Was it that sort of transfer of executive power towards Parliament? When we come to assess Pym's main importance, I suppose the biggest thing of all about Pym is his capacity to bring together particular groups of people. He does this, first of all, for example, with the Scots. He's an architect of the alliance with the Scots. He's an architect of the alliance between the City of London and Parliament. He's an architect of the close relations, really, between both Houses of Parliament, the House of Lords and the House of Commons. He's very much in favour of another alliance, which is between the Parliament and the Westminster Assembly of Divines, that big conference of ministers of religion. Pym is keen to see that happen. So what Pym is very good at as a politician is to have a vision and to be excellent, you know, very, very skilled at bringing together people who will support his vision. I think that's the overarching contribution of Pym, to have the vision and to have the capacity to reaching out with the aim of creating unity. And he said himself that as far as he was concerned, and he says this quite early on in the long parliament, the aim of his policy is to achieve a situation where they had united brethren under one God in one religion, faithful subjects under one sovereign. The sense of unity there, of course, is far from the case, of course, with the civil war and so forth. But the principles of unity, trying to create unity by whatever means, is what Pym was always trying to do. He's not sectarian, really, despite the appearance of being so in the civil war as being the leader of parliament within the concept of opposition to Charles I he's quite a broad unifying figure so far as he can be so far as he was able to be. So Pym died on the 8th of December 1643 possibly from bowel cancer what do you think was the legacy that he left the parliamentary cause? The main legacy, I suppose, is in the work with the Scots, the Solemn League and Covenant, which he'd worked tirelessly for in Scotland, long outlived Pym's life. And in England, even, had a kind of viability long after Pym's death and was a factor being discussed even in the late 1650s by some people as a 
political commitment. So there's that. His legacy of making sure that Parliament worked very, very closely with the city is a legacy, the City of London. And his work for religious uniformity, so far as it was possible, is a legacy as well. There was nothing sectarian about his religious interests. He can't be sort of pinpointed as a particular member of a particular sect. Had he lived longer, I think he would have been probably a political Presbyterian in his outlook, but we can't even be sure about that. He would have worked for unity as if he'd lived longer, and I think everyone recognised after Pym's death that he had worked for unity between the houses and across the political divisions. Had he lived, it's possible that the sectarianism that we see in the later 1640s might not have happened. It's hard to think necessarily of Pym as being part of the Presbyterian independent fighting in the late 1640s. So his legacy really is a lot of might-have-beens, I suppose, with Pym. And how did the royalists react to his death? Well, of course, they were delighted and they produced all sorts of theories about how he died to imply that he'd been consumed by horrible flesh-eating creatures or something. They were delighted, of course, at the death of King Pym. It suited them fine that he was no longer around. So he was buried a week after his death in Henry VII's chapel in Westminster Abbey. But what happened to his body after the restoration of Charles II? Well, along with all the other leaders of Parliament who'd been buried in the Abbey, his remains were flung into the common pit. We don't know precisely where, so there's no grave, as it were, marking Pym's final resting place. His legacy is one of his ideas and his contribution to parliamentary history. So looking back on his life, how would you characterise his long-term impact on the later history of Britain and its parliamentary government? Well, that's a very big question, of course, but I think he does deserve to be remembered. He's not an easy figure to pin down, and he's not necessarily an attractive figure. He was an elderly man when he really got going in the long parliament. The pictures we have of him show him as a rather elderly, slightly overweight, chubby character. He leaves no exciting legacy of battles or beautiful quotations. So we have to work hard, as it were, to recover the John Pym. But I think he's a man well worth remembering, really, as an architect of the modern parliament, and arguably because he owed nothing to a major patron. He wasn't dependent on anybody, and he worked full-time and tirelessly for parliament. I think he's got a claim to be considered England's first professional politician. Well, thank you very much indeed, Stephen. You've really helped to bring him out of the shadows for us and to help us appreciate and understand his contribution and legacy. Thank you very much, Andy.